0: Tales
2: to Terrify.
3: Good evening, children of the night. Thank you for making your way back to the Shenandoah and to us here in the cabin. I think I saw a leaf or two changing color already, so that season change is already starting. Speaking of changes, I've been keeping you up to date on my thoughts on some of last year's horror novels. I've taken a break from reading horror novels for a book or two, just to mix it up. I'm about to start Charles J. Sykes' Fail You. After reading an interview with the author at Vice, I thought that a book that is critical of higher education be interesting, considering that I work for two different schools. It might be enlightening. However, on the topic of horror, I recently attended a film festival that showed, by my count, three horror films. I'll briefly mention each of them this week and the next two. The first film was a film coming out of Korea called The Wailing, and that's wailing as in an uncontrollable cry of sadness, not the kind with boats and harpoons. The premise is that in a small village in rural Korea, people start going nuts and killing friends and family. It has a very lengthy runtime weighing in at 2 hours and 36 minutes, and I feel that the film had quite a few scenes that could have benefited from an editor with a generously sharp knife. However, the movie does have lengthy scenes of magic casting that actually makes a difference in a movie set in Korea that also uses cell phones heavily. If for nothing else, it may be worth seeing just to see a movie in which one of the characters has a shaman on speed dial. Let's hear some scary stories. Our first story is from Jeff Carlson. Jeff Carlson was born on the day of the first manned moon landing and narrowly escaped being named Apollo, Armstrong, or Rocket. His family worked for NASA Ames at the time. His granddad, on his mother's side, was a sci-fi fan whose library included autographed copies of Isaac Asimov's Foundation trilogy. Both men were strong, early influences, and in the high-tech 21st century, it's easy to stand with one's foot in reality and the other in thriller novels. Jeff is the international best-selling author of Plague Year, Interrupt, and The Frozen Sky, hailed by Publishers Weekly as Pulse Pounding. To date, his writing has sold in 17 languages worldwide. Jeff's novels have been translated into Czech, Dutch, German, Japanese, Spanish, Romanian, Russian, and let's not forget Turkish. His short stories and non-fiction have also appeared in most of those languages as well as Esperanto, Estonian, French, Greek, Hebrew, Hungarian, Italian, Polish, and Portuguese. He lives with his wife and son in California jeff has also had stories on our sister podcast starship sofa and with our friends over at pseudopod but tonight here on tales to terrify we will be hearing jeff carlson's caninus
0: there was definitely something wrong with the dog cancer maybe An eleven-month-old shepherd should be its own riot of energy and noise. This poor girl sprawled on the examining table like a pile of yarn, utterly lethargic, offering no resistance to Diana's manipulations, wincing at the light and breathing shallowly. Her mild fever couldn't account for this stupor. Diana would test for parasites, but office files showed that the shepherd had been wormed on schedule. Cancer at this age would be unusual like leukemia or cystic fibrosis in a child, the world was a cesspool. Diana knew anger wouldn't help, yet she felt a familiar dull heat surge through her chest. Sickness was such an insult. You say she's better at night? she asked. A pit bull of a man, short and pudge-faced, the owner spoke in a grunt. Not much, he said. Diana glanced at the window where late afternoon sunlight lanced through the drawn mini-blinds. If the summer heat was adding to the shepherd's problems, the briskness of the air-conditioned office should have perked her up. As Diana's last walk-in of the day, the shepherd had been kept waiting most of an hour. Plenty of time to cool down. Diana guessed there were other periods of improvement during the day while the owner was at work, and that he must be imagining a pattern where there wasn't one and she's not eating, Diana prompted him. He shook his head. Are you sure she hasn't been fighting? What? He shook his head again. This isn't a self-inflicted wound. He blinked, then stepped forward with a frown. Diana gently sifted her fingers through the shepherd's neck ruff to expose the newly healed bite marks that she'd discovered some dogs were limber enough to not open the base of their own necks in a vain attempt to destroy fleas or mange but the angle of these punctures was all wrong the attacker had come from behind and above strangely it was a tightly localized pattern rather than the body-wide bruises and cuts typical of a fight diana might have thought that a running male had latched on to the shepherd but the poor girl wasn't in heat even more bizarre It almost looked like the scars were layered, as if the bites had been inflicted over a period of time. Diana was surprised that the owner hadn't noticed the wounds when they were fresh. The shepherd's jugular vein had nearly been opened. There must have been plenty of blood. My fence, the owner said. She can't get out. Diana didn't argue. He could believe what he wanted. As a vet, Diana preferred dealing with chatty folks because they were easier to judge as caregivers, but off-duty she favored the company of more quiet types. She enjoyed making her own sense of things, rather than being battered with the obvious. This made her something of a stranger in Gen M culture, but her pet huskies, Sam and Sandy, were enough for her. The three of them led a small, satisfying life together diana had recently spent her thirtieth birthday alone in a hot bath with a book and some wine and didn't regret it a bit invisible beneath a layer of bubbles her slim hands had recreated the perfect lazy urgency that her ex's fingers had once built inside her without his roughness or his greedy kiss pretending alone was new for diana but she knew what was good for herself She hadn't moved from the suburbs to the San Francisco Peninsula to find new friends, but to escape her old ones, who'd ridiculed her for becoming such a solitary cliché after the divorce. Spinsters aren't supposed to be veterinarians. They're librarians, Beth had said, laughing. People could be such shitty idiots. Diana was glad to lock the front door behind the owner. She had more than an hour's work ahead of her yet there was a slim chance that she could get in a quick walk afterward. The days were still getting longer. As she glanced through the window over the empty parking lot, calculating the sun's fall toward the blocky horizon of high-rises, Diana felt a strange sense of foreboding. She had always admired animals for their heightened instincts, which seemed quicker and more honest than complicated human emotion. She tried to adopt that centeredness herself, and to act on hunches as if they were fact leaving her ex had been a test of intuition, and a successful one. Diana wasn't sure yet whether she trusted the owner. He seemed to love his shepherd. He obviously combed the poor girl regularly, and he'd protested about being separated for the night. But Diana had never seen an animal so close to Catatonia, except when abused. Back in the examining room, Diana noted that the shepherd's listless demeanor did not change now that they were alone. The poor girl's glazed stare made her feel guilty for being so concerned about getting out in time to get some exercise. Finding a vein was surprisingly hard, and when Diana succeeded in drawing blood, its pale color made her frown. She was also glad she was wearing latex gloves. Human beings were not susceptible to most canine diseases, or vice versa. But she had always had to be extra careful to avoid carrying something home to Sam and Sandy. In her closet-sized lab, Diana pulled an old microscope from the shelf and squeezed a tiny drop of a sample between two slide plates. It proved to be mostly plasma, the red cell count too low, the white corpuscles swarming furiously. The shepherd was dying of what appeared to be a viral infection, which made it all the stranger that the bite wounds had healed so cleanly. Diana had never seen anything like this. She gave the poor girl a dose of Clavex, a wide-spectrum antiviral, then two shots of vitamins. Unfortunately, it would be at least seventy-two hours before the samples she'd mail to Biodyne were processed, animals being a last priority. But if... The shepherd spasmed upward from the table like a gout of fire. The dog was fluid muscle and gnashing teeth. Diana fell away, cracking the base of her spine against the counter. She instinctively raised both arms to protect herself as the shepherd coughed and spat. Training made Diana move forward to help, her hands reaching out now, but fear caught her in midstride. She stared. The shepherd convulsed, paws and muzzles drumming on the table, and then the poor creature also froze. Just as quickly the shepherd relaxed, her head and legs dropping onto the table with gentle thumps. It was over. Diana stepped forward, then hesitated again. She saw blood mixed with the shepherd's spittle. The poor creature was dead. The recording on the owner's answering machine seemed uncharacteristically jolly. No one's home right now, but you know what to do, the man said. She didn't. The last time a patient died in the office had been right after New Year's, and the family was right there to take the Siamese home. Diana knew there were heavy plastic body bags somewhere, but she was too upset to remember whether they'd been put in storage or were in one of the examining room's half-dozen cabinets. She focused on the shepherd—internal bleeding, heart failure, possible stroke. Such a powerful allergic reaction to clavix was unheard of, and Diana tentatively decided that the shepherd's death could not be related to the injection. She cleaned the floor and table slowly, tending to the corpse, became a meticulous ritual, a kind of penance. Then she called the owner again, still no one home. It was twilight before Diana walked out to her car, still shaken and thinking queerly. She glanced over her shoulder twice, provoked by an unidentified feeling. It felt like fear. She told herself that guilt was only natural. Bad things happen to good people. That was the stumbling, random way of the world. Her mother liked to say that what was important was how each person dealt with their burdens. The city looked different, hard, sterile, even threatening. The surreal pinkish hue cast by the street lamps only heightened her strange mood. Sitting at a stoplight next to a hulking bus, fenced off from the dark sky by power and phone lines, Diana realized that she'd passed through three entire blocks without seeing a single tree or any vegetation whatsoever, except a few weeds struggling up from the sidewalk. This was no place for animals, or for humans, really, living in boxes stacked ten high and in the straight narrow canyons between reabsorbing their own filth and pollution through lungs, stomach, and skin. She'd wanted to be anonymous outside of work and to be her own boss in a private clinic. But she spent her days treating claws fractured on concrete, irritated eyes, asthma, digestive disorders, and bones and bodies smashed by cars. It was a losing battle. The sheer density of the population was the very reason that the city was so inhospitable. And yet she was content here, both at home in her own little space with Sandy and Sam and at the office where she met so many other animal lovers and their companions. Pets softened people, awakened compassion, and a sense of responsibility in them, traits that all too often otherwise seemed non-existent. Lost in her musings, Diana drove right past a parking space just half a block from her building. By the time she realized her luck, another car had pulled into it. She found another space down by the corner. That spider-light feeling whispered up the back of her neck again as she stepped out of her car. She glanced around. Full darkness had come. Illuminated windows cast a hazy gleam upon the rows of parked cars. She saw nothing. Then a low, sneaking shadow detached itself from the blackness beneath a station wagon. Inhuman eyes gleamed back at her. Diana's heart jumped, and she took a step back. Then she grew angry with herself. Men were something to be scared of. Muggers, rapists, not a neighbor's dog or some stray yet she was very aware of the distance to her front door. The compact shape paced closer, strong, deliberate, its glinting eyes never wavering from her. Diana spun and ran. She felt strangely sad to see Sandy and Sam, who trampled each other, and her, in their eagerness for contact. Thoughts of the dead shepherd were like a tapeworm in her mind. Sam and Sandy sensed her anxiety, the way they understood all her moods. They calmed quickly, and she knelt to meet them, and all three became a roving pack-hug of fur and comfortingly familiar smells. Sam and Sandy were husky-lab mixes, smart, loyal, and stinky. Diana could never bring herself to rob them of their identities by washing them, scent being a canine's most crucial sense. Visitors might have considered her ground-floor apartment somewhat ripe but she didn't have visitors. After giving both huskies an individual scratching and nonsense murmurs of praise, Diana led them to the side door. The so-called yard was only four feet wide, but it ran the length of the entire building, enough room to toss a ball. The landlord refused to let her install a pet door, but, like most dogs, Sandy and Sam had an amazing capacity to hold their bladders all day. Back inside, both huskies got a chew treat for being so wonderful, and Diana allowed herself a glass of wine. She put a pot of spaghetti sauce on the stove, diced some garlic and green onions, then went to her room with a second glass. She distracted herself from memories of the ugly day with glances at the mirror, smoothing her nylons from her calves, opening her blouse from her small, perfect chest, knowing that true escape would come later in a hot soak, knowing... Sam and Sandy howled, not their usual throaty bark, but a panicked yelping. It felt as if the doses of adrenaline from earlier in the day were still in Diana's bloodstream. Her limbs surged with fear and clumsy strength. She threw down her blouse and rummaged through her nightstand, then ran. Sam fell silent before Diana reached the end of the hall, as Sandy's baying took on an even higher pitch. There was another dog in the living room. Sam pressed against the intruder. His nose ducked submissively low, but his tail, at stiff attention, his hips cocked and hind legs quivering, enthralled. Diana glimpsed his red penis as it grew erect. Sandy, still baying, fell quiet and also ducked her head as the intruder turned on her, as if its sparking eyes were some sort of weapon. The utter wrongness of the husky's reactions sent a heavy pain tumbling through Diana's entire body. Sam! The word came out as a howl. Empty of thought, only instinct, Diana thrust her thirty two forward and fired twice. Directly behind the intruder, small blossoms of splinters burst from the side door. Less than ten feet separated them. Diana sighted carefully and fired again, and a third crater appeared in the door. The locked door. Sandy squeezed under the love-seat, moaning, but Sam seemed oblivious to the gunshots and began to awkwardly hump the air. The intruder was also unaffected. Conscious thought returned to Diana in a cold, shocking swarm as the intruder faced her, its lips drawn back from a mouthful of unnaturally large fangs. Part of her noted clinically that its nose was dry and scaling, its paws misshapen. It was the shepherd the dead shepherd, whom Diana had left zipped in a heavy bag inside an industrial refrigerator. Would silver bullets work? No. That was for werewolves, and this was no oversized hulk of muscle. It was a shadow, a mesmerizer, vampire. The clues had been there all along. The multiple bites where another Caninus had fed repeatedly on its seduced victim. Diana had also noticed the shepherd's weakness, lack of appetite, and bad reaction to daylight. Had an infected human somehow managed to pass the curse to a favorite pet, immortalizing it, or had the werewolf and vampire legends always been confused? Diana thought of the clavax. The drug had caused a violent reaction from whatever had been incubating in the shepherd before it had died. But vampirism was clearly more than a viral disease more powerful, and more evil. The shepherd had died, she was certain of that. It had died, and then resurrected. Perhaps the Clayvax had even forced the transformation, as the paranormal disease grew beyond some critical level in response to the drug's attack. These creatures must be extremely rare, or even the conveniently dense feeding ground of the city would have long since been overwhelmed. Wood and garlic were supposed to be weapons. Even as Diana began to turn toward the kitchen, the shepherd pounced. The logic exploding through her skull vanished. She fired once more, point-blank. The shepherd didn't notice. It slashed at her forearm and unprotected chest as they fell together. Diana felt blinded more by horror and the suddenness of motion than by pain. The floor slammed awareness back into her, and awareness shot through with agony. The shepherd dug through her soft belly and scraped its fangs against her flexing spine as she thrashed, her scream reduced to a wet sigh. But the shepherd wasn't interested in her. It did not feed. It turned and left her as everything went black. Diana dreamed that Sandy was burning. The high note of Sandy's yowling bespoke complete helplessness, and silence fell again as Diana woke, dull and hazy. She saw Sandy creep out from under the love seat stiffly, compelled, as the shepherd stood waiting. Satisfied by this total obedience, the shepherd moved past Sandy to Sam, sniffing briefly at his maleness before latching onto his neck. He collapsed with a loving groan. Diana wept, clawing weakly at the carpet, only vaguely aware of the sticky red bog spreading through the soft fibers beneath her or the flecks of meat that her hands encountered. Why had the shepherd come here? Because she was its last memory? For revenge or sheer evil? How intelligent could it be? Then she remembered how it had simply walked away after neutralizing her as any sort of threat. Vampires thirsted for their own. Perhaps it had scented Sam and Sandy among her things and fixated on them as its first meal why, no longer mattered. Steadying her arm demanded more physical strength than her body seemed to contain, but Diana's mind had shrunk to one rigid point and there was energy and desperation. Her first shot was bad. It took Sandy in the flank as Sandy stood watching the shepherd bleed Sam. Sandy yelped, waking from her trance, and Diana shot her in the face. Sandy crumpled. The Feasting Shepherd didn't lift its sopping muzzle from Sam's neck until Diana put a bullet through Sam's chest, until the blood flow stopped as Sam died. It was the best that Diana could do, the cleanest. The shepherd rushed toward her again, slavering, and she fired the last bullet up through her own mouth.
3: That was Jeff Carlson's Canaaness, as read by C.J. Plogue. C.J. has her master's from Washington University in St. Louis and has worked in the mental health field for 20 years. She grew up in the Midwest and does not remember a time when she didn't love reading a good book. Between family life, education, and career, time has become a precious commodity, and leisurely reading, a guilty pleasure. Listening to audiobooks became the perfect substitute during long commutes to work. C.J. was always curious about how readers for audiobooks were selected and secretly desired to be one, but that seemed as ludicrous as dreaming of a career in Hollywood or Nashville. When her daughter told her about LibriVox, it was the perfect fit. A community committed to transforming public domain works into audio format, eager for volunteers non-judgmental and free. T.J. has been enjoying listening to completed works and reading for LibriVox since July of 2014. You can find her works and many more at LibriVox.org. Link to her readings will be in the show notes. Our second story of the night comes from T.G. Arsenault. Originally from Auburn, Maine, T.G. Arsenault retired from the Air Force after 22 years and currently resides in upstate New York with his wife and son. His first novel, Forgotten Souls, was published in November 2005 by Five Star Publishing. His short fiction has also appeared in multiple online venues and anthologies, Octoberland, Raw, Random Acts of Weirdness, Made You Flinch, Stories to Unnerve, Disturb, and Freak You Out, and most recently, The Gallows. His short story, The Eighth Day, also received an honorable mention in the year's best fantasy and horror 16th annual collection. His latest novel, Bleeding the Vein, was released in October from Gallows Press. And now, let's give a listen to T. G. Arzenald's God Be Damned.
2: The air loomed redolent of bacon, eggs and sausage, usually a welcome smell. I observed those around me, though they were the furthest from my thoughts. People ate, people conversed, people laughed. Two a.m. and they kept coming in, freshly drunk and obnoxious. I sat alone in a back corner of the restaurant's smoking section, Waiting, thinking about the previous day. A smile never to appear on my unshaven face. Teetering on a crooked edge, a partly crushed pack of cigarettes sat on the table before me. Eyes bloodshot from being awake at this hour and shedding a few tears. Yes, tears. I waited patiently. At first, thirty minutes had gone by before a fucking asshole of a waiter... I'd even asked if I'd been helped. Thirty motherfucking minutes. I knew exactly how long I'd been sitting there. I didn't wear a watch. Didn't need one. Ten Winstons were rubbed heavily into the amber ashtray in front of me. Roughly three minutes for each cigarette. Fifteen drags each. Right down to the filter. Chain smoking. I gave thanks for still having the freedom to smoke in this particular restaurant. Everything else about it. "'wasn't worth a shit. "'I didn't answer the waiter the first time he asked for my order. "'Maybe to give him a lingering taste of his own medicine. "'Or perhaps just to squeeze every bit of cockiness "'out of a head that seemed too small "'for his venous biceps and chiselled abs, "'both revealed beneath a shirt that appeared purposely small. "'Excuse me, sir, have you been helped?' "'he said in a voice, complete with an irritating nasal whine.' His eyes rolled into the back of his head and looked everywhere but at me, his customer. From somewhere below the table, I heard his foot tapping quickly. I only looked at the open menu, bent and trembling, within my gnarled fingers, waiting for him to come to his own fucking conclusion. I refused to answer until he looked directly at me. After three long drags, pulled from my cigarette and exhaled into his squinting, beady eyes. He did. Gritting my teeth, trying my damnedest not to scream into those mocking eyes, I ordered a large breakfast and a pot of coffee, through lips stretched tight across my teeth. First licking the tip of a pencil, he scribbled down my order, then waddled away with a stride that hobbled on thick thighs. I shook my head and continued to wait, looking at the other customers. They were all eating, even the drunks who'd staggered in after me. I watched my waiter move between tables, whispering into the ears of his co-workers every now and then, spending more time in one girl's ear than the rest. His eyes met mine on more than one occasion, and a sneer formed upon his face, as if, as if I was some sort of festering inconvenience. soul. I tried to cast him out of my thought, but could think of nothing other than wiping the grin off his face with a little help from the pavement outside. I pulled another crooked cigarette out of my pack, contemplated the effects it would have on my life, and realized it just didn't matter. With a quick flick of a zippo, I had the cigarette lit and half smoked within one long, depressing drag. A moonless night pressed against the exterior of the windows, giving the impression that the people inside were the only people left on the face of this godforsaken earth. Dim reflections of those inside danced upon this makeshift mirror, their shapes distorted by the glass. Beyond that, not even the headlights of a vehicle penetrated the thick blanket of darkness. If only my dumbass waiter knew my story. The tumor in my head was the size of a lemon, a big one, two months to live at best. Why couldn't it have been a tumor in one of my lungs? So far I still had two of those, or even gangrene, I could do without the use of one appendage. Besides the tumor, something was growing alongside it, as if it were feeding on the tumor, increasing in size just as fast. A pool of magnifying shadows, it had an abstract shape of its own. And a pulse. The entire staff of the hospital had huddled around the pictures of my brain, clipped against a fluorescent light, and determined a pulse existed in the mysterious shape through the change in its size every few seconds, each caught on a different frame. I couldn't stand looking at their faces while they perused the images with wrinkled brows and jaws a a little too slack to make me feel comfortable. And when they tried to explain things, they never seemed able to look me in the eyes. They had looked only at each other or their shuffling feet, hoping someone would come up with a grain of truth they could transform into cryptic babble I could swallow like a candy-coated lozenge. I knew better. I hadn't been home since three o'clock yesterday afternoon. After leaving the doctor's office, numb and in disbelief, I had driven around town for hours. Images of x-rays and CT scans going through my diseased mind, only stopping for gas when necessary. The sunset, and hookers perched on the city's darkest corners. I almost invited a fairly attractive brunette inside my car, doubt if i could have erected anything other than her curiosity i was only feeling desperate and alone so i drove and drove some more going over the last few months trying to make sense out of the nonsensical bringing order to something that that had become overwhelmingly chaotic the nails on each of my fingers and toes had been growing at feverish speeds those were the initial symptoms Weird, I know. At first it was no big deal. I chewed my fingernails constantly, so I didn't realise how fast they were really growing. I also cut my toenails once a week, enough to keep any ingrowns from puncturing the sensitive skin of my big toes. I started cutting them every other day, when I realised my socks had more holes in them than usual. My nails were starting to become stronger, thicker, and the nastiest shade of yellow I had ever seen, a colour I'd normally associate with something near death, exhaling its final fetid breath. Minor headaches quickly turned into explosions of pain. The sudden pale colour of my face painted a reflection of the man struggling to live inside its ghastly shell. My wife had scheduled yesterday's appointment, knowing damn well that I wouldn't do it, and followed it up, by calling the doctor's office to be sure I actually showed. She hadn't heard from me since. I went in for a manicure, a tan and something to get rid of these fucking headaches, but came out with something strange growing inside of me and feeling like a a dying, misfit toy. The doctor wanted me to stay away from any stressful situations, as my condition could increase dramatically. I tried to appreciate the irony of what he was saying. My visit to his quaint little office sure didn't help matters. Storming out of his office, I did my best to ignore the violent spikes of pain in the back of my skull and the shadows starting to breed and creep along the shrinking boundaries of my vision. I couldn't go home until I found a way to break the news to my pregnant wife that our new baby would have no father that hurt the most. Where the hell was God in all this? Forget the starving children in third world countries and natural disasters, the depleting ozone layer or threat of nuclear weapons in the hands of infidels, and praise be to the almighty fucking God. Forget about the constant reminders of Armageddon coming from televised saviors. This was about me. Three additional smokes added to my collection and creating some semblance of a pyramid with the other stubbed filters in the ashtray. My waiter returned. With the wrong fucking order. I told him so with a steaming whisper and spat what I thought was a fingernail onto the table then wiped it off with a lazy brush of my arm. His eyes rolled again as he snatched the plate off my table and mumbled something beneath his breath. A thousand spiders seemed to crawl just below my skin. I felt like kicking this steroid loving waiter square in the nuts. Instead, I merely smiled, and he ran back to the kitchen, face almost white as my own. My cuticles split open around fingernails, extending past their waxen tips. Pressing against the edges of my sneakers, my toenails begged for freedom. I placed my hands below the table, out of sight, lest I rip someone's throat out. The mysterious shape within my head permeated every part of my body, growing with languid leaps like some sinister amoeba. My pulse pounded chaos at my temples. I took some deep, needed breaths, and the darkness slowly shrank inside me, making my innards convulse as it receded into my cranium and finally slipped back inside my brain, leaving my body with a violent shiver that made the spoon rattle on the coffee saucer. At least I could still control it. Somewhat. I continued watching the waiter hobble around in search of my order, unsure if he was simply delaying another visit to my table. I lit another smoke, doing my best to hide my hideous hands. "'studied the cheesy contemporary art decorating the walls. "'Tried to relax. "'Still fairly amazed at the spectacle, "'I observed my nails slowly shorten, "'as though perusing them before choosing which one to gnaw on. "'Felt the warm hint of blood within my shoes. "'My hands were shaking, "'causing ashes to fall from my cigarette and into my coffee. "'I needed some food.' A jukebox stood dormant against the wall farthest from me. Unnecessary, considering the amount of entertainment the drunks provided. I think I heard one get slapped out of my line of sight. Laughter followed. I looked for my waiter and thought of ways to kill him. The good lord knew I had the time. Clearly envisioning the look upon his face, blood vessels bursting within the glowing whites of his eyes, I imagined sewing his lips shut, permanently sealing the source of those snide remarks and that hideous whine. I chuckled around a mouthful of smoke. Coughed. I'd do it with some crude instrument, not the gently piercing needles that surgeons used. Maybe a chicken bone. Not only would I sew his lips shut, I'd light his feet on fire and watch those lips split open like one of those... Outback Steakhouses, Bloomin' Onions. As he went through the door that led probably to the kitchen, most likely having the cook spit in my eggs, I pictured the amount of utensils I would find back there, perfect for poking and prodding. I wondered how long it would take his face to fall off as I dipped it into the fryer and enjoyed the frantic kicking of his legs as he tried to struggle free. With more than enough time for my mind to wander, my malicious fantasies were suddenly intruded upon by the harsh, sad thoughts of my unborn child. The reality of it flooded my veins with the heat of blood at a boil as I realized I would never be able to see the birth of my first and only child. Never get the chance to snuggle with a life I had brought into this world. Never smell the cleanliness of its innocent skin. Soon there would no longer be any late nights watching cheap horror flicks buried beneath the blankets with my wife. No more marvelling at the swell in her belly as my son or daughter pushed against the feel of my touch or the joy of laughter and amazement at such a simple sign of life waiting to breathe the outside air. I fought against the wetness within my lids, the brewing of an impending storm. Though cold, He finally brought the right order, standing just far enough away from my table to lay the edge of each plate on the table's corner before pushing them the rest of the way. He didn't stay long. Butter had soaked clear through the toast and made a slice droop within my fingers as I picked it up. I noticed my nails again. Ugly. Quickly scooped scrambled eggs into my mouth. Cold or not, They tasted pretty good. I thought the cook may have added a few eggshells as a favor from my whining friend, but didn't care. Ravished, I gulped down another piece of toast, sausage and more eggs. That was when I bit my tongue and restrained a scream of rage within my throat. A childlike squeal managed to escape. I let my mouthful of eggs fall into an open napkin, rolled it up and placed it on the table. Groaning to myself, I felt for my tongue with a shaking finger, still there, but the back of my finger rubbed against the bottom of a tooth and came away with a scratch. I checked the rest, gently probing from molars to incisors. Every one of them was as sharp as an ice pick and serrated, as as though the outer enamels of my teeth had completely shattered. Curious, I opened the napkin I had rolled up and stared at its contents. Bits of teeth peered at me from within the conglomeration of eggs, sausage, and sparse bits of pepper. Toying with the contents, in dim fascination, I found almost the entire root of a bloody molar among the mix. I slammed my jaw shut as someone walked by. Then it hit me. Any colour I had left my face, drained to my feet as I wondered if what I had growing alongside the tumour would find its way into the blood of my child. The doctors didn't have a clue what was growing inside me. Only tests, tests and more tests could possibly offer some hint as to its creation. Tests invasive. Painful experiments that would find their way into the infantile veins of my child as soon as he or she was delivered from the safety of its womb. The thing in my head began to stretch its black fingers throughout my body, tugging on exposed nerves, taunting me. No longer hungry, appetite stripped completely from my bones and something inside my head leaving me weak and delirious. I left enough money to cover the meal and a tip, no idea why, and made to leave in a hurry, before I hurled all over myself. The night swallowed my footsteps as I exited the restaurant and walked towards my car. A light rain had fallen and moved on since I had first arrived, leaving only a soupy grey ceiling in its wake. Sporadic bolts of lightning decorated the distant horizon, accompanied by low rumbles of thunder. An unsettling truth to God's harsh existence. I noticed my taurus sitting at an odd angle, the right rear seeming to fall away from me. I knew what it was immediately, and wasn't the least bit surprised, but the pounding soon reappeared at my temples. My nerves were beginning to flutter like malignant butterflies. A flat, flat. I paused in the middle of the parking lot and squeezed my eyes closed as I pinched my fingers hard over the bridge of my nose. A nail scratched my cheek. My tremulous hands could barely hold the tire iron in place. With every rotation I seethed, animalistic grunts erupting from my chest. There was always one nut that just wouldn't budge, and I fought with that one for quite some time. Jagged teeth ripping into my gums as I clenched in frustration. My growing nails began to clink against the rim, and I had to fight the urge to look at each monstrosity. Tire changed. I left the deflated tire and rim where I dropped them, against the yellow curb of the parking space. I slammed the trunk, slammed the door once inside the car, slammed my hands upon the steering wheel. Fuck, fuck, fuck! "'Vulgarity spewed from my mouth with unharnessed fury. "'A mere glimpse of my reflection unleashed a rage "'I had no intentions of withholding. "'I gripped the rearview mirror from the windshield, "'clawed at the faux leather under my thighs. "'Fire spread through my feet as my toes protested against nails, "'exploding from tender flesh. "'Talons soon curled against the tops of my sneakers, "'screaming for release.' Spittle landed on my chin as I arched my back, hard, chewing back the pain. With a searing climax, muscles fluttering with tension tight against bones, I collapsed into the driver's seat and felt my chin smack against my sternum. For a moment, I wondered if my heart still beat within its shallow cavity. I was spent. Exhaustion replaced the anguish and numbed, frayed nerve endings drool stretched from chin to chest, and I, without the strength to lift a hand to sever the liquid strand, just listened to a developing gurgle of phlegm rattling in the back of my throat. My gaze wandered with slow strides inside the confines of my car, left, right, lazy, unfocused circles. When it happened upon the rear-view mirror on the floor, The reflective glass within its plastic frame pulled me inside as if barbed hooks had just snagged my pupils. Snapped to attention, I looked past the fish sticker adorning its right-hand corner and into the spotted glass where I saw myself staring back from within the menacing eyes of my unborn child. Within the mirror, crimson images dripped with ghastly detail. Its razor-sharp claws tore at the womb, scraping against its protective cocoon. Ripping away layers of muscle and flesh, it paved a path to the surface, shredding organs with its teeth as it shook its head with spastic whips. It thrust through the surface of my wife's swollen belly, now a tangled mess stark against her beautiful skin, and expelled its sordid breath. With a slow turn of its head, "'chest heaving with breaths that seemed too large for its tiny body to contain. "'It looked at me, and I knew. "'Much like a child nuzzling the fabric of a favourite blanket, "'I caressed the tire iron next to me with calming strokes, "'loving its feel and the strength I pulled from it. "'I watched the last of the customers leave, "'a little more sober than when they had arrived.' My whining friend soon emerged from the restaurant, apparently done with his shift, and fumbling inside his pockets, he picked out a key among dozens, cluttering a large ring, and passed my car, our eyes meeting again. He flipped me the bird. Before he even had the chance to get his key into the ignition, I had the tire iron hidden beneath the sleeve of my jacket, neatly in place and easily accessible. As I walked with steps in line with his side mirror, I heard the car deny him the favour of starting on first try. When the splutter of the second crank faded, I tapped on his window with a long yellowed claw. He jumped in surprise, chin quivered beneath a nervous frown. I tapped again, this time hard enough to scratch the glass. He stretched a third crank to no avail. It appeared as though this wasn't his day either. His jaw muscles tightened and eyes stretched just a bit wider. I think he knew I wasn't going to be leaving any time soon. The tire iron fell from my sleeve and into my hand in one fluid movement. My speed and strength impressed me as I smashed the window opened the door and pinned him to his seat with one arm, his nurtured physique suddenly worthless. We shared a moment of intense eye contact before the ascending arc of my arm pulled his attention away. He didn't blink. With each blow of the tire iron, I yelled the Lord's name in vain, loving its flavor upon my lips, the absolute power. Over and over I screamed his name in vain, an insatiable appetite for blasphemy, running rampant, searching for the very core of my soul. I longed to tear him from the cross and bury my teeth into his throat, letting his purity boil within the heat of my blood. A guttural snarl rumbled in the bowels of my chest as the darkness grew with sudden ferocity, filling every cell, every pore. Pieces of flesh flew around me, on me, and inside me. I licked at a drop of splattered blood that had found its way onto my lips. My entire body tingled in ecstasy as I began to relish my newfound glory. Only when my blows were striking the tattered remains of cloth and flesh did I stop, leaving the waiter's bloody corpse where it lay, irritating wine forever silenced. The sickness inside me pulsated with strong thunderous beats, threatening to separate the skin from my bones. Soon I knew it would devour me. Quickly, getting behind the wheel of my car, I ignored a small group of people running from the restaurant, eyes wide, mouths agape, oblivious to me. They only pointed at the hand that hanged from the open car door and dragged its knuckles on the pavement, swaying from a frayed strip of flesh. Stroking the cool, sticky surface of the tire iron, I sped away, intent on delivering the terrible news. My pregnant wife and a cure for what was growing inside her. God be damned!
3: That was T.G. Arsenault's God Be Damned as read by Ranjan. Ranjan has written and published children's books, scripts, and screenplays for animation and live action. Musical lyrics and libretti. He's a student of strange phenomena and parapsychology, horror, and children's literature. You can see Ron John's videos and hear more on his work on the Spectre Collector blog. You can download his albums on the Spectre Collector Bandcamp and check out Ron John's hymns to the cannibal blood cult, the fungus sanguinarius, at the Fruits of Madness blog. Links to all three will be and the show notes. Thank you, Ron. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Our show was produced by our editors Philip Oldham and Scott Silk and theme music by David Raiklin. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.